Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of child death. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Uh, well, hi. Hi. How was your Thanksgiving? What did you do? It was pretty good. We went to my cousin's house, and it was my cousins and their kids and my aunt and Davy and I, and it was so fun. Cute. Yeah, we had a bunch of food. Delicious. We had a lot of laughs, good times. First time, eh, First, like, official family event we've done since I've been home. We did something else that was, like, family and friends, but this was, like, strictly family. So it was cool bringing Davey around, like, the first family holiday. Precious. Yeah. Um, And then on the way home, we stopped at our friend's house and spent some time with them. And, uh, yeah, then we headed home, and our dogs were, like, furious. (laughs) Oh, I bet. They were so probably so sad to be left alone all day. Yeah, we only left them for eight hours because we figured that's like a standard work day anyway. But yeah. they did not like it at all. They're like, WTF, <laughs> how dare you leave Aww. us? <laughs> Poor babies. I know. What about you? You were out of town, right? Yeah, I had to do Thanksgiving twice uh, because we went up to see Miles' family in the Bay Area, and then my family did Thanksgiving down here in Santa Barbara. So uh, it was nice seeing people, but as we know, I'm not a fan of this holiday or holiday food in general, so <laughs> it's it's whatever. But it was cute to see people. That must be nice, going on a trip. Uh sure did yeah did you drive um, or you flew yeah we drove so it was oh. kind of like four and a half hours up there stayed the night did thanksgiving the next day stayed the night and then drove four and a half hours back got back to santa barbara and then the next day did thanksgiving again oh my gosh was that at your place no thankfully my aunt hosted it this oh, year nice. so we at least didn't have like third because i think we were like 20 people probably so it was nice that it wasn't all at my house at least <laughs> Nice. I only have one like little updatey thing before we start with the episode, which is that remember, I think it was last time we recorded, I mentioned that the two men who were imprisoned for Malcolm X's assassination were mm. exonerated and released. Yeah. Like two days later, the, there was news that one of his daughters passed away. So I was like, oh. that's just so weird, such weird timing. Malcolm X's daughters or? Yes, yes. Oh, oh, oh. Well, R.I.P. Yeah. Malika Shabazz was her name. Uh, I just have a couple of re- quick recommendations. Okay, great. I watched on, I believe it's on Hulu. They are, you know, the same series, the New York Times series that did something on framing Britney Spears? Uh, yes. They did one for Janet Jackson now called the... Oh. oh I think it's called The Public oh. Undressing of Janet or something like that. Oh, and it's about Nipplegate? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was great. Highly recommend watching it. I obviously have a different perspective of it now than I did back when it happened, just based on where I am in life and all the things that have come (laughs) to light in the entertainment industry and beyond that happened to women of color. And uh, it was just eye-opening to see uh, a timeline of it from a new perspective and all that. So that was pretty good. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. And also on Hulu, on I think it's 2020 like a special 2020 episode or something. Diane Sawyer inter, uh, interviews two of the Turpin children, or w- young women now. And that's yes. the family in California that had like 16 or 15 kids living in the house. And the parents was like, would chain them to the beds and they never left the house. Did you ever hear about that? You know what's so funny is I I saw like the headlines um ki- coming up recently but mm-hmm. I had never I don't think I knew the story and I I somehow just didn't like get into the news when it was breaking so I don't know a lot about it. It's pretty wild and it's got um in 2020 fashion it repeats itself quite a few times throughout the episode <laughs> when it doesn't need to could have shaved probably like oh, 30, got it. 30 minutes off maybe but uh, it's great to hear from their 
own perspectives what was going on to hear what they're doing now and it also goes over some of the some of the injustice that happened to these 15 survivors of this wild family um yeah after they get out and like the system is supposed to be helping them didn't exactly go that way quite for quite some time Mm. and it kind of shines a light on that too which is really troubling but good to know yeah so those are two things that we watched that i thought were really good and i wanted to share (laughs) great that's it lovely well listeners we're doing kind of a special episode today because we decided to record an svu episode and recap or recap and crime for you today Mm, exactly and if you like this this is what you can expect to hear on our patreon every month that's right so you should sign up get on it get on the stick (laughs) (laughs) all right shall we shall we shall we get into it so this is season one episode seven of law and order svu and it is titled uncivilized (laughs) which Mm. earlier in the in the week you had texted me and was like what was the name of the episode again just to confirm we're watching the same one and i just wrote uncivilized and you were like for a second i thought you were insulting me (laughs) I mean, that is absolutely an insult that you would throw at me. Oh, 100%. (laughs) (sighs) So nasty. Anyhow. So we open to the episode with a couple of kids who say that they found the body of a young boy in a pile of leaves while playing football in the park. Mm. And Olivia talks to the boys as Elliot approaches, and we learn that the boy who's lying there's name is Ryan Davies, and he was only eight years old, and he is deceased and was assaulted before being killed, which explains why SVU Mm -hmm. is there. Right. The next scene has the detectives telling the parents who have an expectedly shocked reaction, and because SVU is way better with pacing, we're already at the opening Mm -hmm. credits. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And because it's SVU, I didn't have as much time as I usually did, so I had time to just juice a bunch of oranges, pop some champagne, have a mimosa, and return. Uh, How many oranges did you juice? uh, If it was a regular uh, Law & Order episode, I probably would have been able to do a Grove. But with this one, I just did, like, you know, SVU, A bag or two. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So now we're back in the squad room, and we discover, as they go over all the evidence with the rest of the team, that the boy was reported missing 40 hours before being found. Uh, There was no sign of a struggle, but he was covered in bruises. Mm -hmm. By the way, Detective Jeffries is yet again in one of her classic vests, cut off sleeves, never a sleeve to be seen with Detective Jeffries. (laughs) Just not not her thing. Like, Olivia has her iconic hair every season, Elliot has his ass, and Jeffries (laughs) just has vests. She got the shit end of that stick. And, and Time Wizard Munch has just his glasses. Tiny little glasses, yeah. Yeah. Last time anyone saw the victim, Ryan, he was going out to buy Pokemon cards after school, um, which, in true out-of-touch adult form, Olivia pronounces Pokemon. Pokemon. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> do you think that that was the the choice of the director, or do you think she actually thinks that's how it was pronounced? I think that none of the people on set had a clue. They're like, oh, what, what do people do now? It's not Pogs. What is it? And someone's like, Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember, I, I, I think it was my mom or my aunt. One of them had to like take some kids to the Pokemon movie. I was too old for it at this point, but <laughs> some of my cousins were like four or five years younger. And I just remember one of them be the mom, I think it was my Aunt Trisha saying, like, it was just 30 fucking minutes of animals going like, Pika, Pika, at the beginning of the movie. Like, there was no dialogue and just, like, 40 minutes of made-up sounds. Hey, listen, I love those movies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, Time Wizard Munch and Officer, I'm just going to call him Officer Mayhem, because that's his name in the in the insurance commercials they go talk to some concerned moms at the kids school with their version of girl scouts i guess outside they're like selling cookies and they ask one of the little girls if they know who would hurt ryan and she says oh probably some older boys mike d and jimmy g 
Um, okay. So more on those names in a second. They find a teenage <laughs> guy in a backwards cap. So you know he's a bad boy. You know, you know he's trouble. Backwards oh, cap. Always. Right? Of course. Yeah. And they go, you Jimmy G? And he goes, no, I'm Mike D. <laughs> and I'm like, wait. Oh, my God. They actually go by, like, these names, like, with the last initial, like, we're watching The Bachelor. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yes. I was may, I, Maybe there are so many Jimmys and Mikes that they actually call themselves that. I'm not Jimmy G. I'm Mike D. I can't. Uh, I cannot D. handle it. So Jimmy G does a skateboard over. It's a very <coughs> 90s moment. Like the backwards he's, caps. He's on his way to get some pizza rolls. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He skates over and like uh, a multicolored word that says blam shoots out of his skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> gnarly so they uh they say that they saw a weird guy last with the last name turbot and he was riding his bike around the neighborhood and they've seen him at the school before so they were around the park so they're like you know the closest thing to eyewitnesses they have to what could have happened jimmy g and mike d and how did they know the last name of the weird guy right right they saw a guy on a bike and they just <laughs> know his last name Right, because if there were a creepy guy in the neighborhood, the kids would just call him the creepy guy in the right. neighborhood. Weirdo on the bike. <laughs> yeah. And and the both of the boys are doing this thing that, like, all 90s bullies do on TV and movies, I, I find, where they, like, open their mouths uh-huh. way too large when they're speaking and over-enunciate <laughs> every word, man. <laughs> very <laughs> annoying. Very distracting. But they, before Child we leave... Actors. Oh, God. Benson and Stabler follow up with Turbot, and they grill him on why he rides his bike near the park where the kids play. And he's a little odd, but he just says, it's a beautiful park, and it's good for the environment to ride my bike. And they ask him what he was doing the night Ryan was killed, and he says he was at a tavern getting some drinks. And before they leave, he almost has a panic attack when Elliot puts a glass on his stamp collection. (laughs) All righty. Um, as they leave, Olivia gets the dirt from Turbot's tire. Literally gets the dirt. Not like <laughs> gets the goss, gets the hot goss. Right. She literally collects dirt from Turbot's bike tire outside and they bring it to forensics. Meanwhile, they bring in Turbot for a lineup and the two punk kids from before pick him out. And I kind of didn't see the point of this because they already like knew who he was. They already they were, identified him. They were the ones who led him to him. Right. So, but hey. We got a positive ID. Shockeroo. Um, next, Benson and Stabler are questioning Turbot, and he's sticking to his story when Jeffries interrupts to let them know that A, she still hasn't found her sleeves, <laughs> and B, she tells them that he is actually a convicted sex offender from an 11 year old charge. And uh, he's followed all the rules since then, but the charge was for child molestation of an eight year old boy. So it's not looking good for Turbot. And you could see Stabler's temper and rage is starting to escalate. The close-up on his face every time something like this happens. And you could see he's just, like, yeah. you know, grinding his teeth. Yeah. If this was, like, a drinking game, that would have to be one of them. Like, Stabler reacting oh, to anything and relating it back to his own kids. And then every time you see his ass, you have to finish your drink. <laughs> I bet, you know what, I bet... I would bet money, and I'm going to Google it right now, that there is a Law & Order SVU drinking game. There is. I have played it before. The only things I remember were something about Elliot losing his temper. Um, There's something about, like, Ice-T saying something, like, stereotypical. And Olivia, I think if the storyline has to do with Olivia being a child of assault, that's one of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's out there. There is. Yeah, oh, I just came across the rules. So there's, uh, like, probably 20 different things for drink once. There's probably another 20 for drink twice. And then probably 15 for finish your drink. (laughs) And the finish your drink are things like the father of a rape survivor shoots the suspect. Uh, Somebody, there's a close-up. Oh, my God, Matt. There's literally, there's a close-up of Olivia or Elliot brooding over a tough case. (laughs) Oh, forget it. (laughs) Finish your drink. You'll be drunk by the first, the third scene. (sighs) Anyhow, the next scene shows an angry mob of parents outside of Turbot's apartment for them not being notified that he was a sex offender. 
And Cragen and our detectives meet with his parole officer and therapist, who insists that, you know, he's made a complete turnaround. The officer admits, though, that he did not notify the neighborhood because he wanted to protect Turbot. And the therapist said that the previous charge was only because he was in a psychotic state and he was high out of his mind. And he believed that the victim mm. at that point was a reanimated corpse coming for him. That's a lot. Okay. That's, right. That's a very convoluted story. <laughs> right, right. And either way, I mean, you still have to notify the neighborhood. That is like the whole yeah. point of the yeah. registry. Yeah. Anyway, so his attorney is fighting the charge and the... Jumpy Turbot has, like, an episode about it. He's not liking that that they're going to have to draw blood from him regardless. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of overacting. <laughs> His attorney is a guest star. It's the only one I could... Re- I, I felt like a lot of these people looked familiar, but this was the only one I can identify. She's played by Jessica Hecht, and she is... From way back when, she's Susan in Friends who is Ross's ex-wife's new wife. And more recently, in The Sinner Season 3, she plays Sonia, the artist. Oh, God, thank you. Okay, the whole time I watched The Sinner, I was like, where do I know this actress Uh, from? (laughs) Susan. That's where you know her. (laughs) So she is the the defense attorney for Mr. Turbot in this episode. Got it. The next scene is Stabler and his family having his expected overreaction to his children being children, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But we do get to see more of that beautiful rear end, so I wasn't mad about it. (laughs) No complaints, yeah. So then the next scene, they're checking up on the alibi uh, if he was really at this tavern. And Stabler finds out from the bartender that Turbot was there that night, um, but he left for a few hours and seemed upset when he did. Mm. Right? So next up in the forensics lab, we have a man with a very unfortunate ponytail telling Benson and Stabler (laughs) that the dirt didn't match, um, didn't do much of anything. But Mm -hmm. the bike chain pattern for uh, this guy's bike does match the ligature marks around Ryan's neck. Mm. And it's a bike chain. I'm not talking about the chain on the bike. It's like the chain that, like, secures the bike. It's just a standard chain. So I thought that was kind of oh, a yeah, yeah, stretch yeah. because, you know, it's just that one size of chain of, like, standard chains. But it's something. Right. Like so, the security chain that, like, a yeah. million people could go buy at Home Depot. Exactly. Yeah. So before they can arrest, the DA asks that the detectives talk to his previous victim from 11 years ago or however long ago. And that kid is now not a kid anymore. He's actually in his 20s. And they want to compare the M.O.s of the two crimes to see if it fits. Because they need more than just a bike chain. And the word of uh, Mike D. and Jimmy G. So (laughs) they head to Christopher James's house. That's the name of the boy who is now 20. And Olivia speaks with the young man who has clearly not really worked through things yet. And he says that back when this all happened, the incident, he went to Turbot's house to sell candy for, you know, fundraising, and he was invited inside Mm -hmm. where Turbot convinced him to play a game that made him uncomfortable, and when he resisted, Turbot got mad and wrapped his belt around his neck and then sexually assaulted him. Yikes. So with this, they're now able to go arrest Turbot, and as they do, there's a crowd of his neighbors doing a really strange clap outside because it's not, like, necessarily clapping. They're kind of doing it at the same time. It's like a slow, weird <laughs> clap in unison. It's a, it's the beginning beginning stages of a flash mob. It, 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 that's what it felt like, honestly. Like the car could have driven away and they could have just been doing High School Musical. Yeah. But before he's hauled off completely, the bartender comes running out of nowhere. I didn't even see him in the mob, but he comes running out of nowhere to the car and he admits, hey, I lied about Turbot leaving that night. Um, he actually didn't leave. He was at the pub the whole night. But I did it on purpose because he's a pedophile and he's got to pay anyway, right? And they're like, <clears throat> not right, but... Not right, I guess actually. Yeah, I guess they figure we got him on other stuff anyway, so no harm, no foul. We'll deal with that later. <laughs> Back at the police station, the DA tells Cragen that he needs to hold Turbot despite his al- alibi checking out because it doesn't look good and it's 
you know, just to release him again. It's bad for optics. And uh, yeah. it's better to have him locked away than have the public be upset. Plus, he could always technically still be dangerous. The They argue back and forth a little bit because Cragen thinks this is immoral, but he agrees to hold him for just a little bit, at least just to buy the cops some time to investigate. Yeah. Um, my question is, now that they yes. know he's innocent of the crime at hand because his alibi checked out, no one seems to be interested in who is guilty for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> we seem to now focus on how can we make Turbot being arrested, like, how can we reconcile that? <laughs> right. Versus, oh, wait, a little boy died at the beginning of this episode, and now we know it wasn't Maybe him. we should focus on that. Hello. Yeah. But anyway, now we have Turbot being spoken to by a psychiatrist, and he describes the crime that he had committed back in the day and said that he barely recognized his apartment after it had happened, and he had never fantasized about anything like that before. He was pretty mild-mannered. And she asks him, the psychologist asks him, do you feel remorse? And he just dodges the question, saying he doesn't really remember it. Right. So then he sits there crying and feeling sorry for himself, yada, yada, yada. The DNA comes back, however, and they have to release him because the DNA is not a match. So the DNA on his body is not from Turbot, which we already Mm -hmm. knew. Knew. The psychiatrist, however, says that they will file a civil suit against him, and it'll likely put him away because she's pretty positive based on her interview that he will be a repeat offender. Mm -hmm. And based on his interview, I would say that's probably a good call. Yeah. The detectives break the news to the Davies family, and they're disappointed, and they keep asking, has anyone found Ryan's glasses? Has anyone found Ryan's glasses? Which to me means that this is going to be a case cracker eventually, because they've mentioned it every time they're on camera. But what about Ryan's glasses? Like, we get it. (laughs) Yeah. We're still looking for them. It'll lead us to the killer. We got it. They should have had, like, the mom in every scene when she wasn't talking, just having her hands, like, with their, her fingers in circles over her eyeballs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> just in the background, pointing at her eyeballs. So then Stabler has a scene where he's in his kid's classroom for career day. They're very young kids, by the way. And uh, mm-hmm. it's very after school, especially, like... There's full dialogue for this moment. It, it, if you cut this out and put it in an after-school special movie, it would have blended perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, you know, he's talking to them about his job as a detective. And it's kind of nice to see kids talk about this type of stuff in school, even though they're young. But, you know, it's nice that yeah. he says things like, make sure when a police officer approaches you, you ask to see their badge. Don't just trust any police officer. Because mm-hmm. that's not what I was taught growing up. No. <laughs> It's like, police officer, do whatever they say. So Exactly. The next scene has the defense attorney now arguing with the psychiatrist to not have her client be put away. And Turbot is free in the meantime, you know, so maybe they can, like, I don't know, investigate who actually did it. Right. But not surprisingly, in the next scene, as Turbot leaves the courthouse, we have Ryan Davies' father playing vigilante and shooting Turbot on the steps of the courthouse on their way out. I mean... Isn't that Mm -hmm. what you just said about the drinking game? (laughs) Yeah, literally. Um, There's literally one when the father shoots the the, uh, suspected, the suspect. Right. There we go. So finish your drink. (laughs) Finish your drink, folks. Yeah, if you're playing along at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so we've been building up to this moment all episode, it feels like. I didn't know if it was going to be him who did it, but it felt like someone was going to take this opportunity to kill him. Yeah. Elliot, like a buffoon, tries to defend the father's actions in the next scene because he's a dad. He understands. So he gets he's a dad. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're back to questioning the obvious criminals now. I mean, the two teens from before. Jimmy G. Jimmy G and Mikey and D. And Mike D. <laughs> right. So Officer Mayhem has Jimmy G in one room and Mike D is with Time Wizard Munch. And shockingly, their stories don't match. Can't believe it. Hmm. So then we have Elliot with Mayhem, and they're heading to the park to look for es- for evidence again. And what do you think they find? His gla- <gasps> Not the glasses. I, could you believe it? The glasses, twenty five thousand. Never believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody and- on on Twitter the other day like made it to twenty five thousand followers, and they literally posted the. 
Dana Wilkie uh, give. Did you know? 25000 Amazing. <laughs> I would get a Twitter and want to make it popular just for that moment. <laughs> oh, 100%. I plan on doing that if either of our Twitters ever makes it to 25000 25000 Did you know? Can you believe? Did you know? <laughs> so then, guess whose fingerprints are on the glasses? It's Jimmy G. Hmm. And then they find a chain in the water as well. And the chain that they find has DNA, and the DNA matches the same DNA that's under Davy's fingernails, which belongs to Mike D. So hmm. we're back in interrogation again. The boys are separated. And now our boys are big crybabies, and they say, uh, I don't remember who says this quote, but I wrote it down because it's so outrageous and so 90s. The quote is, <laughs> They were surfing and fell into some sex offender website. Surfing. They were surfing. Oh, surfing the, the net. web. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's very like, yeah. So we have some very, very dramatic panning camera work with fades between the two boys now. We just keep going to the left and right and fading in and out of this emotional <laughs> story. And the story is that. Jimmy G had the idea to screw with Turbot since he was a pedophile. And so they stole his bike chain. And then when they were bullying this poor kid for no reason, uh, Mike says it was Jimmy's idea, but he held him down as Jimmy assaulted him. Disgusting. And then they killed him for no reason whatsoever with very little remorse. And one of them says something like, he was a loser anyway. What's it matter? And then the episode ends with their horrified faces of the uh, the detectives. I mean, what was this episode even? Like how they they wanted to bother the local pedophiles so they became pedophile murderers themselves? Right. It was like, it was a lot of concepts for one episode, you know? <laughs> like, I can understand, like they should have just went with like, you know, the red herring of him being the potential bad guy and it ends up being somebody else. Why did the yes. somebody else's that it had to be be like doing it to harass him as well rather than just doing it and then trying to place the blame on the most likely suspect? You know what I mean? That would have made right, more sense. Right. How, how old do you think Jimmy G and Mikey D were supposed to be? I think they were supposed to be like high school students. Maybe, like, low high school, like, freshman age. But they looked drinking age. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when when they cast 35-year-olds to play teenagers on a Netflix TV show. Yes. They, like, just gave them, like, crazy hair. One of them had, like, crazy hair. He looked like Spinner from Degrassi. And the other one had a backwards cap. And, like, they just thought, you know, we'll throw them in some clothes from the Gap. And, uh... They're kids. Yeah. Have you ever... I know you're not... You haven't seen all of 30 Rock, but all I can think of is the scene with um, Steve Buscemi when he goes undercover at a school because he's a private investigator (laughs) and he's dressed just like these two guys. And he says, how do you do, fellow kids? (laughs) I have seen that. And I've also seen the meme. (laughs) Sometimes I use that meme at work when when my coworkers are using vernacular that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I'll just throw myself in with that one. <laughs> well, this case is actually based on the story of Leopold and Loeb. Have you heard this case before? No. Oh, I don't it's think a pretty so. famous one. Maybe I have. That sounds but, familiar, Leopold and Loeb, but I think it's just thinking of names that sound familiar, so I don't think so. Also, there's a scene in the Gilmore Girls where Lorelai gets set up on this terrible date with this terrible guy who's like from her parents' world, uh-huh. and she asks if his, they, like, knew each other when they were kids, and she asks if her dogs are still alive, and he says, Leopold and Loeb? <laughs> like, so, anyway, uh-huh. reference. So, this took place in Chicago in the 1920s, so I can understand why you might not have heard of it, mm-hmm. potentially, just because it's an older case, but it was considered the crime of the century at the time. Wow. So let me give you a little bit of background on Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. So Nathan Leopold was, and I'm just going to call them Leopold and Loeb, I think, yes, throughout the entire thing. So 
Leopold was born on November 19th, 1904 in Chicago, and he was apparently, by all accounts, a child prodigy. Like, the things that I read said that he said his first words at four months old. Uh, He ended up graduating high school when he was 16. He graduated from the University of Chicago when he was 20, and he graduated with honors. So, by all accounts, a pretty bright kid. And also, his family was really wealthy. His dad... (laughs) I don't quite understand this industry, but the article that I read said that his father had run a multi-million dollar box manufacturing company. Okay. Like, I I guess, like packing boxes? I guess. Everyone needs boxes, right? Sure. So, that's Leopold. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Loeb was born the next year in... 1905. He was actually born on June 11th, which is my birthday, so maybe I'm the spirit of Richard Loeb reincarnated. I hope not. So, he was, he also was supposedly a really bright child. He skipped several grades when he was in primary school, and he ended up being the youngest graduate ever of the University of Michigan. He graduated at 17 from college. Oh my god. So both kids, like, really, really bright. And as I said, uh, the Leopold family was pretty wealthy. The Loeb family was, like, rich, rich, because his father was the used to be the president of Sears Roebuck. Like, you know, Sears, Ooh. the company. I certainly do. Every so summer very... I, I watch the commercial for their air conditioning unit. <laughs> <laughs> do they call it Sears Roebuck in that commercial? No, I don't think so. I feel like the Roebuck dropped off before even I was born. Like, if, I think that was something that was done by, like, the 50s, probably. Yeah, I think any Sears that probably had Roebuck on it at that point was a relic. Like, we're not paying to take yeah. that down off the sign. <laughs> yeah, for sure. They're like, it's vintage. We're keeping it up. Yeah. So Loeb apparently had a fascination with crime. He read a ton of detective stories when he was a kid, like, you know, all the Hardy Boy type things Mm. and other kind of true crimey stuff. He was really interested in that. And um, they knew each other, Leopold and Loeb knew each other when they were kids. Because, again, they lived in the same neighborhood, the same city. Their parents were both, like, super mega wealthy people. So they all sort of ran in the same circles. Mm -hmm. Um, But they really kind of developed a closer relationship when they were both students at the University of Chicago. Um, Leopold, who had already graduated from undergrad was pursuing a law degree, and apparently, even at the age of, like, 17, 18, had kind of garnered a name for himself within the field of ornithology. So he was recognized as a national expert on this specific kind of bird called the Kirkland Warbler. Okay. Uh, So he had, like, published things about this bird and, and stuff. So, again, just really, really accomplished smart, privileged people that we're dealing with here. Yeah, it's, it's very, like, of the things to be smart about, I mean, privilege does come to mind <laughs> when it's like... When you're an expert in a certain kind of bird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the nature of Leopold and Loeb's relationship is, like, kind of hotly debated, and you'll see a number of articles and even, like, some books that will talk about them as though they were lovers... Mm-hmm. But I can't, I literally could not find any explicit evidence for that. But it's one of those things that I think kind of gets repeated over time. And so it just sort of like came to be connected to their narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, the only things that I could find were that Leopold really idolized Loeb. Like he really looked up to him and how brilliant he was, even though he was younger, a little bit younger than him. Yeah, maybe it was something that there were whisperings of at the time. But yeah. I mean, at the time, yeah. I think, what was this, the, the 20s already? Yes. So, and, you know. I mean, these these two guys end up being pretty terrible people. And so um, I'm sure in the 1920s, it was also very easy to be like, oh, they were weird because they were gay or they something. You know, like, uh, you can see how that would yeah. easily be a part of the narrative. 100%. So, um, But I did find an article written by a professor of law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and he does believe Leopold and Loeb were lovers. And but again, I read his article and I couldn't find anything that appeared to be based on evidence. So anyway, so these two, but they regardless of whether they were, you know, having 
intimate uh, moments with each other. They were really close. Right. And they bonded a lot over philosophy. And particularly, um, oh God, I should have like played made Google play this name for me so I got it correctly. <laughs> uh, I think... I think correct is Nietzsche. Oh, I think so. Does that sound right? That sounds like how I I've think heard some people, people say, say that. Nietzsche, but I think it's Nietzsche. Um, so he, they were really obsessed with his book called "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," um, and in this book was a concept of the Ubermensch, which maybe you've heard that word before. I have Ubermensch or Mensch. Okay, Ubermensch is this concept that, like, a really simple translation of it would be, like, Superman. Mm -hmm. uh, but, like, a, a better translation that folks kind of argue for is, like, superior humans. So it's this... I it Nietzsche's work, apparently... Um, <laughs> I, did, I didn't read any Nietzsche myself, but I read a lot of summaries about this book and the concept of U Ubermensch to make sure I kind of had a better understanding of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I understand it to be, like an ideal human that is like a goal we should be striving toward not necessarily one that is achievable but kind of like the ideal perfect human um and it's described in his writings as a person who is willing to risk everything for the enhancement of humanity so interestingly i kind of thought of magneto from the x-men you know what's really interesting about that what? About this whole thing, there's a big connection happening here, un, I'm sure unwittingly. So okay. the reason I know the Ubermensch is because uh -huh. that was what was in the third season of The Sinner. That was what oh. that guy, Jamie, that concept that the two guys talked about yes. in college. And yes. it was written on his wall um, when they go to the dorm room. And oh my gosh! It's really interesting that it that's like a story of two guys that were into that concept and and had a relationship that was like sort of like lover, sort of like mentor, best friend, and the guest star from this episode was in season three of The Center for the whole thing. That is so weird. Right? And like for sure, I think that that season was inspired by Leopold and Loeb. I mean, now that I'm hearing this, that's that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, it's so interesting. Okay. Um, so my, again, my kind of interpretation based on many of the, like, summaries that I read are that the concept of the Ubermensch emphasizes that, like, the ends justify the means, and that the Ubermensch is not necessarily bound by the morals and values of a society, but instead provides a model for the values and um, morals that humanity should be aspiring to. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, this apparently was a concept that Hitler was really inspired by. Uh, but apparently he kind of like cherry picked from it to inspire like Nazi eugenics projects. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that's a lot of people say like not representative of the actual concept of the Ubermensch and also what Leopold and Loeb end up doing is also kind of a uh, interpretation. strange interpretation yeah. of it. Yes. <laughs> Leopold and Loeb interpreted the Ubermensch to be like men who were so exceptional and so smart that they were above laws and rules. You can probably see where this is going. Mm -hmm. So in a letter to Loeb, Leopold wrote, a Superman is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men he is not liable for anything he may do oh boy so right so as i mentioned earlier leopold really admired loeb and he actually kind of thought that loeb was sort of this perfect example of the ubermensch because again really smart really accomplished graduated college at 17 etc and these two men, in addition to bonding over philosophy, apparently bonded over crime as well. Mm. So, believing themselves to be ex like pretty good examples of the Ubermensch concept in their minds, um, and above the rules and laws of society, they started engaging in some petty crimes, because again, they see the Ubermensch as being above the law. Um, so the petty crime kind of started off petty. It was like theft and vandalism. Uh, they broke into a fraternity house and stole little items uh, and also stole a typewriter, which will actually come into play later in the story. Hmm, okay. 
But they didn't get caught. And Leopold and Loeb decided to kind of like... Their crime spree kind of... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not accelerated. uh, Escalated? Escalated. Thank you. So it kind of escalated. Like they started setting fires. Um, (laughs) But just doing these crimes apparently wasn't enough for these guys. They also wanted attention for having done them. Like they wanted the news to be talking about them as like, wow, there's some criminal masterminds stealing typewriters and setting fires. Like that's what they wanted out of all of this. Right. Um, (laughs) They wanted to be like laughing at everybody and not being able to figure out it's them. Exactly. So, like, literally, I have a note to myself, like, did they want a headline, like, criminal geniuses steal typewriter? (laughs) Like, I think that's what they thought would be happening, and it was not what was happening. They thought it was going to be typewriter gate. Yes, for sure. So the law article that I mentioned earlier from the University of Missouri professor um, talks about how Leopold had apparently contemplated killing Loeb throughout this period. Like, um... Their trust for each other was really strange. Like, they had a really intimate connection, but they also sort of, like, held things over each other's head for, like, either uh, blackmail or, like, insurance that if you fuck me over, I can fuck you over kind of stuff. Uh And so there was a moment, apparently, where Leopold thought that Loeb had kind of, like, breached that confidence and... Um, the the planning of this perfect crime that they were going to commit was a result of Loeb wanting to have something on Leopold. As I said, there are debates over whether these men had sex or not. And this, this University of Missouri professor who thinks that they were lovers believed that part of the reason that they were committing these crimes was... Loeb wanted to, like, have some things on Leopold to, like, counter unwanted, like, unwanted demands for sex. Like, so that his his perception is that they were friends, but Leopold really wanted to have sex with Loeb, and Loeb uh, kind of masterminded all of these crimes so that he could be like, no, I don't want to do this, and if you keep pushing it, I will release information about your involvement in these things, kind of thing. That's, that's a lot. Yeah, there's so much going on with these guys. That's a long way to go. A lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So this is when Leopold and Loeb began planning the, quote, perfect crime to show the world that they were indeed the... (laughs) I don't know what the plural of Ubermensch is. Ubermensches? Sure. Let's go with that. (laughs) So they decided that the perfect crime would be kidnapping someone and murdering them. And of course, like orchestrating it perfectly so that they would be able to pull it off and nobody would ever connect it back to them. Based on the fact that I'm telling you this story, we end up, we know that that's not going to be the case. Oh, thankfully. So they debated, apparently they spent a lot of time planning this and they debated killing a lot of different people. Um, including a an associate of the two of them named Hamlin Buckman, who in some of the articles that I read had apparently spread rumors about Leopold and Loeb being in a relationship, which again in the 1920s probably wouldn't go over very well. Mm-hmm. So he was one of the people that they thought about murdering. But wanting attention, of course, like wanting this to be big news to people they decided that the person that they should kill should be a child because that will get a lot of attention. Disgusting. Yeah. So over the course of the next seven months, Leopold and Loeb like planned every aspect of this crime to ensure that it was perfect. (laughs) And my, again, I was, I, sometimes I talk to myself in my notes. Do you ever do that? Oh yeah. Okay. So the, as I was writing that note about, like, planning it over seven months, I was thinking to myself, how are you, like, each morning, like, waking up, having a bowl of Frosted Flakes for months, and not thinking once, like, should I really be killing a child? Like, seven months of planning? Right. You just And apparently through. never... Yeah. You just wake up every day and have your cereal and continue to plot the murder of a child, I guess. Yeah. Have, keep your appointments, so, hang out with friends, do your day-to-day, right, and like think right. about what you're going to do for dinner, but you're not going to think about whether it's a great idea to go through with murdering right. a child. Exactly. So the person that they ultimately decided would be their victim was a child named Bobby Franks. He is 14 years old, and he's actually Loeb's second cousin. Ugh. 
And so they planned to kidnap and ransom and then murder Bobby. So they would kidnap him, they would demand ransom, and they would kill him at some point. And it would all be this perfect crime that they would be able to, you know, attribute to themselves as having pulled off successfully. So on May 21st of 1924, Leopold rented a car under an assumed name, and the two men parked uh, kind of like outside of the school where Bobby went to school. Um, And Bobby only lived a couple of blocks away from the school, so he usually walked home. And they kind of, like, pulled up next to him and were asking him if he wanted a ride. And he was like, no, I only live, like, two blocks away. I'm fine. Um, But then, apparently, because Bobby was um, Loeb's second cousin, they had, like, spent time at the Loeb's house. And again, because they were super wealthy, it sounds like they had a tennis court because Bobby had played tennis at the Loeb's house, according to these articles. And the idea that a house is big enough in the middle of Chicago to have a tennis court is kind of mind-blowing to me, but anyway. So Loeb said to him that he had this new tennis racket that he wanted to show Bobby and was like, come, like, get in the car. I'll show you this cool tennis racket that I got. And that ultimately lured Bobby into the car. What happens next is debated still. Most believe that Leopold was in the driver's seat driving the car and Loeb was in the back seat, which, when they pulled up next to Bobby and were trying to get him to come into the car, wouldn't you be like, why are you sitting in the back seat when the passenger seat is empty? Like, it's, it's just weird. It's a weird visual to try to make sense of. Mm-hmm. So Bobby gets into the car, into the front p- passenger seat. And once Bobby was inside, Loeb struck Bobby several times in the head with a chisel, before dragging him into the back seat and forcing a cloth inside of his mouth, which caused Bobby to die by suffocation. Oh my god. The two men, like, hid Bobby's body on, like, the in the, um, what's it called? The floor well? The seat well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, wherever the, f- wherever your feet go. Yeah. Um... And kind of, like, covered him up, and then they traveled to the spot that they had planned to dispose of Bobby's body, which was in Hammond, Indiana, Indiana, and it was about 25 miles away. Once they were there, they removed Bobby's clothes and hid his body in a drainage ditch, and before leaving, they poured hydrochloric acid on his face and his genitals to, like, hide his identity. And then the men returned to Chicago— And by the time they got back to Chicago, news had already spread of Bobby's disappearance because he hadn't come home that day. Right. So now was kind of like the second part of their plan, which was the ransoming. So Leopold called Bobby's mother and introduced himself to her as George Johnson and demanded a ransom in return for Bobby's safe return. Of course, we know Bobby is already dead at this point. Mm. On the typewriter that they had stolen earlier from the frat house, they typed and mailed a ransom note to Bobby's mom. Um, And meanwhile, they had, like, cleaned all the blood out of the car. They had burned their clothes. And then, (laughs) so they did all of this. They called her, said that she would be getting instructions for a ransom note. They typed out the ransom note, like, cleaned the blood out of the car, burned their clothes. And then they spent the evening playing cards together. Uh Ah, nice. Is that... Isn't that uh, just those moments where it's like sudden normalcy in the middle of like doing something horrendous freak me out. Oh my gosh. I was thinking that okay. too when they were on the way to dispose of his body while he's just in the backseat. They're just driving. Like what They're are they doing driving, on that drive? Hanging out. Just, yeah. Right. So the next morning the, the letter arrives at Bobby's house and the letter demanded that Bobby's family not contact the police and that they obtain $10,000 for ransom and deliver it in a large cigar box. Like, the letter actually specifies a cigar box. You can find the ransom letter online, by the way, so if anybody wants to look at it, you can. Um, So the instructions were $10,000 in a cigar box and then remain at home waiting for our next phone call. The letter also guaranteed the safe return of their son within six hours of receiving the ransom money, which we know was not possible because they had already murdered him. So that afternoon, Leopold and Loeb called the um, uh, the Franks home and provided very convoluted in delivery instructions for, <laughs> for the payment of the ransom. But because these 
instructions were like convoluted as hell things didn't go correctly and so like the the drop of money didn't happen like somebody missed something and in the meantime while all of this was happening bobby's body had been discovered As you can imagine, the murder of a 14-year-old child of a local millionaire made headline news. And so this is when the Chicago police began an investigation and started offering rewards for information leading to the arrest of Bobby's killer or killers. Mm -hmm. Leopold, being the, like, cocky motherfucker he was, apparently spoke openly with the police multiple times and, like, would tell anyone who would listen his theories of what had happened. Like, he just couldn't stop talking to people about it, apparently. I hate when we hear this about the criminals. It's, like, such an appalling display of hubris. I mean, it's all so foul, but Yeah. yeah. Yes, hubris is the perfect way to describe it. But remember, they're ubermenches, so they're above all of this. They're better than everyone. right. So he reportedly even told a reporter that if he were going to murder anyone, it would definitely be, quote, a cocky son of a bitch, a cocky little son of a bitch like Bobby Franks. So he even told reporters, like, oh, well, if I was going to kill anyone, it would be him. That's how, like, good he thought he was at pulling off this crime. And how disrespectful of the victim. Right. Who is your second? Oh, no, I guess it's not his second cousin, but your friend's second cousin. So meanwhile... Police had located a pair of glasses near Bobby's body. So, much like the episode. And apparently, the glasses, like, the type of glasses were pretty normal, but the hinge in the glasses was really uncommon. And apparently, only three pairs of glasses were sold in Chicago with that hinge. And one of that, one of those sales happened to be to Leopold. Wow. (laughs) And it was at this point when I was talking to myself where I said, so much for a perfect crime, you fucking idiot. You left your glasses at the scene of disposing of the body. And you didn't even think, not that I wanted him to go get them, but like you had to have recognized at some point, like, oh, I left my glasses somewhere. And you didn't think, like, what if they're at the crime scene? Right. So. Wow. When questioned, Leopold, so remember Leopold is like this bird-watching dude. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he likely lost them on a bird-watching expedition. Um, and again, he was this well-respected ornithologist. So this explanation isn't like quite as ridiculous. Like the the whole, oh, I lost them while watching birds. It's just happenstance that they happen to be near this body. The fact that he is like a, a bird dude makes it slightly less ridiculous than it sounds, but Mm -hmm. still pretty ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the police, when he told them this, were like, okay, buddy, um, put your glasses in your jacket pocket and show us how they would have fallen out of your jacket without you noticing. And apparently Leopold then like tried to stumble seven, several times to like make his glasses fall out of his pocket and couldn't, couldn't make it happen so the police were like yeah you're coming with us now oh my god that's clever right so under formal questioning leopold and Loeb concocted a story that they had used leopold's car that night and they had used it to pick up two women um they didn't really know these women's names (laughs) and then they dropped the women off at a golf course you know at night yeah in the middle of chicago (laughs) oh my god uh okay um but this quickly fell apart when the family chauffeur because yes they were rich enough to have a family chauffeur of course stated that he was working on leopold's car the night of the murder so it's not possible that they were driving leopold's car that night Hmm. meanwhile police also recovered the typewriter that leopold and Loeb thought they had destroyed and disposed of and the police were able to match the typeface on the typewriter with the um, letter, with the, the ransom. ransom letter, and also written materials from Leopold's law classes. So he had like been taking oh notes God. for his law classes with the same thing that he wrote a uh, ransom a note moron. with. Well, I mean, honestly, the whole like they literally thought that they were going to pull off the perfect crime and they would never be caught. And there are so many. Like, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't pull it off perfectly, but there are so many flaws. <laughs> they remind me of, like, anyway. those kids in elementary school that are, like, that feel like they're smarter than the teachers and always have to be, like, Ugh. 
correct the teacher out loud or like roll their eyes when they're asked yes. a question like oh my god can we learn yes. something please like that's what they remind me of yeah. they probably smell like Very Doritos much. get out of here <laughs> so realizing that their you know quote unquote perfect crime was crashing down around them Loeb confessed to police, but he placed all the responsibility on Leopold and said, he planned it all, he killed Bobby, I was just driving the car. (sighs) Leopold, when he found out Loeb confessed, also confessed pretty quickly, but gave the opposite story and said Loeb had come up with the plan, he had killed Bobby, and I was just the driver of the car. Who's on first? Yeah. So when they had asked them, like, why did you commit this crime? Both of them claimed, you know, fascination with the concept of the Ubermensch and their desire to commit this perfect crime. And in questioning, Leopold said that this idea had come from, quote, the pure love of excitement or the imaginary love of thrills of doing something different. Go on a fucking roller coaster. Right? Get out of Uh, here. Read a book. So... Leopold said that he had been interested, he had always been interested in what it would feel like to be a murderer, uh, but told police that he was disappointed that after he had killed Bobby, he felt the same as he always had. So it didn't change anything about him, and he was disappointed in that. Oh, bummer. God, these guys are fuckers. Oh my god. So their trial, the two men's trial, was labeled the trial of the century and garnered a lot of media attention, as I kind of said. And the Loeb family retained the services of renowned attorney Clarence Darrow, who you might recognize his name. He was the defense attorney for the Scopes Monkey Trial. Oh, okay. Many people thought that Darrow would have his clients enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, because it seems like there is probably plenty of evidence that could support that these men were not uh, in their right minds. Mm-hmm. But... Instead, Darrow thought that it was very likely that a jury would convict both of these men. And so he encouraged them to plead guilty in the hopes that they would receive life sentences instead of the death penalty. And so both of the men did enter pleas of guilty. And even though this was labeled as like the trial of the century, from what I can tell, because they had entered pleas of guilty, it wasn't so much a trial as like a, a hearing. A sentence, yeah. But it still went on for over a month. It involved over a hundred witnesses, including many expert w- witnesses. Um, and fun fact: Sigmund Freud was actually asked mm. to be an expert witness, uh, but he was in poor health, so he wasn't able to come. Wow. Okay. On the day of summation. One of the journalists present uh, described the courtroom as, quote, jammed to suffocation with hundreds of men and women rioting in the corridors outside because everybody wanted these guys to go to prison forever and or get the death penalty. According to the book Leopold and Loeb, The Crime of the Century, during various expert witness testimonies, including psychiatric experts, um, they testified that Leopold and Loeb had some sort of sexual contact or sorry contract um that does seem to indicate that they had some sort of relationship that may have included sexual activities periodically but part of the reason that i think that this whether it's a rumor or not the reason it became part of the like lore of these two men is that whenever like homosexuality or or sort of like anything that people thought of as like deviant abnormal sexuality Mm -hmm. or deviant yeah they thought they were like perverse and so they like they were really concerned about even talking about it in the courtroom and so the courtroom was often like cleared anytime discussions would like veer towards any kind of conversation around sexual activity or sexuality Mm. and um that book talked about how those kind of conversations between the attorneys um and the judge sort of like happened in whispers at the judge's bench. So it's it's that's part of the reason I think people think that they were likely lovers is because there were these several moments where it was like everybody out. Yeah. And They're then so they would covert. talk about these things just in various yeah, it's very covert. So Clarence Darrow, um, his closing statement was twelve hours long. Uh. And is still to this day regarded as one of the best speeches of his career. And in it, he cites the inhumanity of the death penalty. He references that Leopold and Loeb were, were young men. 
and he states, quote, if the state in which I live is not kinder, more humane, and more considerate than the mad act of these two boys, I am sorry to have lived so long. So basically saying, like, the death penalty is inhumane. We should be better than killing people. We should be better than people like Leopold and Loeb, essentially. I'm sure the speech is great. Can you imagine being in that courtroom listening to one person talk for 12 hours? 12 minutes and I would tap out. I would have been like, oh my god, when is this over? Yeah. According to one of the articles I read, Darrow's speech was so like impactful and moving that tears were streaming down the face of the judge when he finished his closing statements. Mm -hmm. And a journalist who was present stated, quote, there was scarcely any telling where his voice had finished, meaning Darrow, and where silence had begun. It lasted for a solid two minutes. So, like, when he finished, apparently it was such an impactful speech that there was just silence in the courtroom for two full minutes. Hmm. Maybe everyone was awaking from a fever dream that they had gone into you as know, the 12-hour speech. <laughs> Maybe the eyes honestly, were that's because he was trying to keep them open for so long. <laughs> Yeah, it took two minutes for everybody to nudge the person who was asleep next to them awake is probably more likely. So two weeks later, the judge ultimately announced his decision, which was sentencing both men to life in prison for Bobby's murder and an additional 99 years for kidnapping. Good. In prison, the men were kept separate as much as possible, but they did manage to stay in touch with each other. And in one penitentiary, penitentiary, they... Um, expanded the school system in the prison to add like a high school degree and a junior college curriculum. So they had done, again, because these men, as horrible as they were, they valued education and saw a lot of value in it. So they worked to expand uh, those opportunities in the prison for other prisoners. Mm -hmm. But on January 28th, 1936, Richard Loeb was attacked by another inmate in the prison showers and was stabbed more than 50 times with a straight razor. He died shortly after in the prison hospital, and reportedly, Leopold rushed to the prison hospital to be by Loeb's side as he died, and even, like, offered his blood for transfusion to the doctors to save Loeb. So, um, according... And another... uh, The book, Leopold and Loeb, The Crime of the Century... Uh, reportedly says that Leopold remained with Loeb's body long after doctors had left the operating room to, like, assist a nurse with washing his friend's body and, like, you know, Mm. cleaning it up. So there does appear to have been a pretty intense relationship between these two, whatever the nature of it was. Yeah. Um, The inmate who killed Loeb claimed self-defense, saying that Loeb had propositioned him for sex and he was just defending himself. Um, But... This seems to be questioned by a lot of people because Loeb's body was the one that had defensive wounds and his throat was cut from behind, which makes this self-defense argument pretty unlikely. Right. And so many people believe what happened was that this other inmate, whose name was James Day, had actually propositioned Loeb for sex. And when Loeb turned him down, he attacked and killed him. But authorities, in an effort to quell scandal, said that James Day was just defending himself and... When Loeb died, newspapers just kind of ridiculed his death and actually lauded James Day for killing him. I mean, it's kind of that sentiment you see where people are like, oh yeah, jailhouse justice. So it was kind of very that in the newspapers. But adding credibility to the belief that James Day had been the one to proposition Loeb was the fact that Day, over the course of his prison uh, sentence, was caught in multiple sexual acts with multiple other inmates and... In Leopold's memoir, he stated that Loeb would never have propositioned Day. So it seems like the likely scenario is that Day propositioned Loeb, Loeb refused, and uh, he killed him. Yeah. So um, so Loeb died pretty young. Leopold lived for a good number of years. He, by all accounts, was a model prisoner, according to all of the articles that I read, and again, worked to expand the education system in the prison. But... Leopold was paroled after 33 years in March of 1958. I don't know how he got paroled with a life sentence and 99 years for kidnapping. That's kind of a question mark to me, but he got paroled in 1958. And then he moved to Puerto Rico. He married someone. Um, And my note to myself, because I like talking to myself, is I thought immediately, like, girl, set your standards a little higher. Um, Like, (laughs) yeah, this is not the man to marry. Um, 
and he eventually died in 1971 of a heart attack related to diabetes, and he was 66 years old. And that is the story of Leopold and Loeb and the murder of Bobby Franks. Oh my gosh. Wow, great job. Wild, right? I mean, I guess we'll talk about it in just a second of, of how it links up to the story, so or the episode, I mean. So how do you how would you rate the episode for watchability? I mean, it was entertaining. Uh, it was annoying. <laughs> it was like comically entertaining at least. Um, yeah. I'll give it a B minus. Yeah, I think I would give it a B minus too. It wasn't terrible. There were not too many, you know, awful things said in the course of the episode, I don't think. Not that I, that I can recall. Yeah. Um, so I'd say B minus. What about how, like, how it connected to the crime? I mean, the glasses are there. Yes, the glasses are there. And the victim The is, murder of a child. Yeah, right? So uh, I think it's a, a strange interpretation. I'll give it like a C. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. I think that's fair, right? Yeah, I would do the same. And also, knowing the crime is based on, we really didn't even need this like child molester angle. Oh, right. Yes, and, exactly. It could have been the two teenagers. Right, and strange that the guy who they choose to be like a pedophile, his crime is so bizarre that they chose like his actual yeah. crime about like being high on right. drugs and. His apartment. And And thinking an 11-year-old was a zombie. Yeah, like, it just feels very... What? Why? Yeah. Where was that from? I agree. What imagination did that pop out of? It was a lot of, like, weird, unnecessary misdirection kind of stuff. Yeah, I think they were like, how can we make the the guy who molested a child seem uh, less like a monster? Oh, we'll have him high on drugs and thinking he was a monster himself. Didn't really work. Yeah. But... No. Hey, if you're happy and you know it, subscribe to our podcast and write us a review because leaving a review makes it more likely that someone else will find our podcast. Also, the best way for other people to find our podcast is through word of mouth. So tell a friend, post about us on Reddit, or find other ways to spread the word. Also, also, we love connecting with our listeners. So feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at rippedheadlines. And while you're online, head over to RipHeadlinesPod.com and you'll find a link to our Patreon there, as well as our merch store. And if you like this episode, you can find many more like it on that Patreon. That's right. And FYI, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you are supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the fact and some fiction. We will see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Thank you.